right, would you join me as we continue, as we pray before we read the word of the Lord. O God, source of all light, by your word you give light to the soul. You pour out upon us the spirit of wisdom and understanding that being taught by you in the Holy Scripture, our hearts and minds may be open to know the things that pertain to life and holiness. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 15. In the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 1 through 15, you can turn to page 835 in your pew Bible underneath the seat in front of you. John chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, You have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. Whenever I uh, go to the Philippines with the team, I get to relearn what contentment is and regain a deeper appreciation for basic things in life, like water. One of the bathrooms that we were using didn't have water for the toilet, so whenever it rained, and it rained a lot, we thanked the Lord because there was a large water bucket outside the house that collected the water. And we were able to get that water, bring it to the bathroom, and use it to do our business. When it didn't rain, though, 
A couple of times we had to pay one of the boys in the neighborhood to fill up the large jar, large bucket outside. He had to take a couple of trips to fill up so that we could do our business. Living here in the States, we take water and plumbing for granted. And in many parts of the world, basic plumbing is not a given. And people, especially many children or women of long ago and even now, still have to go and get water so that they have daily um, allotment to wash, cook, clean, and etc. A few days into our trip in the Philippines, I remember all of us were craving to drink something nice and cold. And um, when we first discovered uh, a Starbucks at a local mall, we all knew we had to go there. I know what I wanted, and most of the guys the same. We, we just wanted iced cafe Americano. Just. And when we took that first sip, we were just so happy. Coffee never tasted so good. There are a lot of things that we hunger and thirst for in this life that we are living. And the question I want to ask us this morning, if you haven't noticed from the title of the passage, as, as well as the passage that we read together, is what are you thirsting for in your life? Do you really know what you are thirsting after? Gospel of John, chapter 3 and 4, are very famous, well-known passages. Uh, chapter 3 of Nicodemus and chapter 4 of this Samaritan woman at the well. And these two encounters are prefaced by end of chapter 2, verse 24, where Jesus on his part did not trust himself to them, meaning people who saw the signs and believed, because what? He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew what was in a man's heart. And just as when Nicodemus shows up in chapter 3, he was a man whose heart Jesus knew. Jesus had an extended conversation with him in the dark. Nicodemus was not only a Jew, he was a ruler of the Jews. He was a teacher of the law. Yet, despite all that, Jesus had to teach him that he had to be born again from above, that this is something only God can do. Despite the fact that scriptures spoke of this, Nicodemus, really hard time thinking spiritually. If Nicodemus was an insider, in contrast, the passage we read today speaks of an outsider, a well-known, nevertheless nameless, woman at the well who wasn't a Jew, but was a Samaritan, wasn't a man, but a female, and had a reputation, not a good one. All these three aspects, you see a radical contrast between Nicodemus as an insider, who anyone who would love to have a conversation encounter with him versus this woman where nobody would probably want to be near her. On a superficial level, when you look at these two people, they seem so different, and they are from the eyes of the world, yet they're not that different. It might make you think about the passage from Luke 15, the series of three parables, the lostness of the sheep, the lostness 
of the coin and the lostness of the young son and the old son. The young son is like the Samaritan woman who leaves a family, goes to party, lives a drunken life of immorality as a rebel. And in contrast, the older brother, like Nicodemus, thinks very highly of himself, self-righteous, blind to his relationship with God, thinking he kept all the rules and is a moral man who can stand rightly before God. You see, both of these brothers, both this Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, they desperately needed to be saved because they were desperately lost without God. Chapter 3 ends with these few verses. Speaking of Jesus, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives a spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son, has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. These are amazing words speaking, reminding us that God sent Jesus. Jesus speaks the very word of God. God gives him his spirit. Father loves him. Everything is given into the Son's hand. God's sovereign always and ends with these words that have been repeated throughout the book so far. If you believe the Son, you have eternal life. But if you don't, the wrath of God still remains. These verses just reiterate the very purpose of this book. As it's uh, repeated at the end of the book in chapter 20, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is a Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. We see the setting of today's story, what happens before. And with that, in verse 1 of chapter 4, it reads, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Jesus left Judea because the Pharisees were up to something. They knew something. They noticed something. Despite all the things that they had seen and heard, they still didn't believe. And as they noticed that Jesus was becoming more popular, more people were following him than John the Baptist, they were becoming more threatened by Jesus' popularity. Verse 4 continues by saying that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, in Jesus' days, an Orthodox Jew would avoid traveling through this territory. They would deem Samarians um, as you know, contaminated people that they needed to avoid. And um, Don Carson describes the situation, why the Jews felt the way they felt about the Samaritans. He writes, after the Assyrians captured Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom, in 722 BC, 
they deported all the Israelites of substance and settled the land with foreigners who intermarried with the surviving Israelites and adhered to some form of their ancient religion. After the exile uh, of the southern kingdom in Babylon, Jews returning to their homeland viewed the Samaritans not only as the children of political rebels, but as racial half-breeds whose religion was tainted by various unacceptable elements. In about 400 BC, when the Samaritans, um, Samaritans erected a rival temple in Mount Gerizim in contrast to the city of Jerusalem. So if you wanted to go down, I mean, you're technically going north, but they'll say you'll go down to Galilee from Jerusalem because Jerusalem spiritually is the highest place. If you're an Orthodox Jew, you have basically two routes you can take. You go west and go up the coastland and come, or you cross the Jordan River on the east, you go up, and then you cross the river to come back to Galilee you wouldn't go through. Although physically it is the shortest distance, it's not a route that a Jew would take because they didn't want to be defiled. However, in today's passage, it reads that it was necessary, it was needed because God had a sovereign appointment. Everything is given by the Father. There is no accident. This is planned for Jesus to have this encounter with a woman at the well. By the time the woman and Jesus comes and meets at this place, it's been 2,000 years since people have been drinking from Jacob's well, the plot that Jacob gave to his sons and a well that he dug up. For 2,000 years, people have been um, living off of it, and it was deemed as a sacred place, especially because it was at the base of Mount Gerizim, with the, the place that the Samaritans worship, still being used today. So um, Jesus traveled for about 20 miles, a little less than some of you guys ran the other, uh, like a week ago, but he was exhausted. He was tired, and sixth hour is the noontime, um, Jewish clock starts at 6 a.m., so 6 hours, 12 o'clock. He was exhausted and tired and thirsty. He was spent, and he needed water to drink. It's in this context that Jesus gives his first statement. He asks a woman from Samaria who came to draw water and says, Give me a drink. Um, ordinarily, it is women of the village who drew water. Women drew water. Um, by going to the well, men did a lot more strenuous work. But they usually came either in the morning or evening after the sun set or before the sunrise to have the daily supply of whether drinking, bathing, cleaning, whatever have you. And most of you women, you notice the, the uniqueness. Um, they would always travel in groups. But here you have a woman who's coming at the peak of the day, when it's super hot, and she's alone. She's a pariah. She's rejected. She is not wanted by other women, and neither does she want other women around her. We still don't know from the reading of the passage, but Jesus knew that this woman, because she knows the hearts of all men, that she had multiple husbands, and the one she was living with now, she wasn't married to, so she was breaking 
the moral code, whether from a Jewish level or Samaritan level. Samaritans didn't believe the entire scripture, but they did believe in the first five books. So Jesus asked for a drink, and we see his humanity. He's worn out. He knows the suffering. He knows what it's like for us to hunger and thirst as a sympathetic high priest that we've learned of in the book of Hebrews. And he, his willingness to reveal his physical need is what he uses to open the door of the conversation. He didn't fake, pretended to be thirsty. He was thirsty indeed. Why? Because though he was fully God and knew all things, he was also fully man. And if you try to look back to the Gospels, Jesus never actually performed any miracles to meet his own personal needs, whether thirst or hunger. It was always to provide for others who were in desperate situation. Verse 8 is interesting because it, as a side note, it says, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. How many disciples do you need to buy food? Maybe all 12. Now, he, he wanted to be alone because he knew that this was his very special time that he needed, and she needed that one-on-one. And we see the first response. The woman, she rightly, because she's confused, Jesus looks the part of being a Jewish man. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Because what? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So she's a Samaritan, he's a Jew, he's a male, she's a woman. Unlike Nicodemus, she's the opposite. Yet, Jesus walks through all that. Nicodemus was looking for Jesus. She wasn't, she wasn't aware of who Jesus was, what he was about, who this man spoke of or performed. She had no idea who he was. And Jesus gives the second statement in verse 10. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus offers salvation and we see the gospel. He says, if you knew the gift of God, he speaks of gift that we can't earn. Yes, he started with thirst, human thirst, asked for a drink, and then he, he pivots to speak of himself as a source of the living water. Living water basically is not stagnant water, it's flowing, moving water that is fresh, that's giving life, that you can drink. And he, he offers that as a gift, free gift of God. Before confronting her sin or sinful lifestyle, he offers the free gift of God. All religions speak of basically do this and do this to get this from God, but we know that the good news is we receive something that we cannot take part in. Leon Morris speaks, the gift of living water is not a reward for meritorious service. It is a gift that brings to anyone who receives it no matter how insignificant or limited he or she may be, a totally new experience, a new power, new life, the life that is eternal. If you remember in John chapter 3, 
The work of regeneration is a work of God. We can't take part in that. Just as to be born again or born above, a child doesn't contribute to it. It's something that the mother does. And to be born again is something that God does monogistically. It's his work alone. And so here again, it's a gift of God. You can't earn it. It's a gift that's given. The only thing you can do is receive as you ask. Second part, I think that's really important to understand this gospel is that knowing who Jesus is. Because if you knew, you would ask. If you know who it is that is saying to you, as the gospel of John is repeatedly teaching us, who is this Jesus, the Messiah, sent by God? You know, Jesus tells this woman later on his divine name. He tells her, I am. He doesn't tell this to the Pharisee, Nicodemus, or anyone else. He doesn't disclose himself, but he discloses his divine name to a Samaritan woman at a well who has been living this way. He offers living water, which is eternal life, as he discloses who he is, that he is the Messiah that they have been waiting for, that the Israelites have been waiting for. If you're a traveler back in those days, now we carry a bottle of water or something like this in your car. Back in those days, you would carry a, a small goatskin bucket. It's like a portable bucket you would use to retrieve water, retrieve water when you come to a well. Jesus didn't have one. Um, and she's still like Nicodemus. Everything is literal and physical. Remember, Nicodemus was stuck on, wait, I need to be born again? So does that mean I need to go back into the womb of my mother? How does that even work? Here, again, when Jesus speaks this way and he offers living water, she can't help but think of, like, where's your bucket? It's like, what are you going to draw the water with? She didn't see how that would be possible. And she uses these words, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Basically saying, Samaritans don't share utensils with the Jews. You have nothing to drink of. But he's asking water from her, and now offering water to her. She couldn't see how Jesus could do a better job than what the patriarch like Jacob did, who gave the land, who dug the well, been providing water for 2,000 years. After all, Jesus didn't have some technology or gadget, and she's still mainly interested in just I need a better plumbing system. I need a better bucket. I need a better source. She's not thinking of salvation. She's not thinking of spiritual thirst. Like Nicodemus, who's thinking physically, she's thinking physically for now. Sure, it's easy to think we need advice on relationships, and we do. 
on work and other things. But she was just the same. She had many problems, to say the least. Her life was a mess. Relationships, to say the least. The fact that she's alone at mid of the day reveals what her life is like. She had a major difficulty in the task of getting water every day. But the greatest need she had, it wasn't relational, it wasn't even water issue, as important as that was. Her greatest need was that she had to be reconciled to the Creator God through His Son, Jesus Christ. Sometimes, yes, we do have to share some wise, practical wisdom. However, the good news is not about self-help plumbing tips and lifestyle, how to get out of conflict in three different steps. She needed more than a new plumbing system. Even if she were able to come in the morning, it still wouldn't deal with her problem of the heart. What are you thirsting for? Friend, are you seeking and thirsting for riches, pleasure, fame, approval, friends, relationship, family, children? Whatever earthly fulfillment you may find, at best is temporary, and you'll have to come back to that bucket and drink again. The woman was curious, where do I find this water that will satisfy? And whether you are a, a homemaker or a president of a company or a businessman, a teacher or engineer, we generally in life, we, we make our decisions to bring us greater satisfaction. But Jesus' third statement, I think, is most revealing. He says to the woman, everyone who drinks of this water in verse 13, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. As long as we continue drinking from the worldly trials, worldly buckets, worldly wells, thirst will return. Jesus is offering a special spiritual drink that leads to eternal life, that gives ultimate satisfaction. The woman is still in her response when you listen. She's still thinking, how, how do I get this water so that I don't have to make these trips anymore? It's like, how do I get this living water so that I don't have to come out in the middle of the day and humiliate myself and get skin cancer? No new pipes, coa system is going to solve the thirst she has in her soul. She had a deeper, more profound thirst that she didn't even know she had. That there was a thirst for God that only God can fill and satisfy. Augustine writes in his confession, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. 
One pastor of long ago, Arthur Pink, summarizes human condition this way. He writes, whether he articulates it or not, the natural man, the world over, is crying, I thirst. Why this consuming desire to acquire wealth? Why this craving for the honors and plaudits of the world? Why this mad rush after pleasure? The turning from one form of it to another with uh, persistent and weird diligence? Why this eager search for wisdom, this scientific inquiry, this pursuit of philosophy, this ransacking of the writings of the ancients and the ceaseless experimentation of, by the moderns? Why the insane craze for that which is novel? Why? Because there's an aching void in the soul, because there is something remaining in every natural man that is unsatisfied. This is true of a millionaire equally as much as the pauper. The riches of the former bring no real contentment. It is as true of the um, globetrotter equally as much as the country rustic who has never been outside the bounds of his native country. Traveling from one end of the earth to the other and back and forth fails to discover the secret peace. Of all the cisterns of the world's providing is written in the letters of this ineffable truth. Whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again. Some of us who are a little older here and a fan of tennis, I don't really play tennis, but I used to watch a lot more when I was younger, might remember a player by the name of Boris Becker. He was amazing. Um, he won Wimbledon, Wimbledon twice. He once as a youngest player he reached the pinnacle of all the athletes were seeking after. He was rich, he had all that he had, and he speaks, there was an interview that I read of going through depression and suicidal thoughts. He writes about having no inner peace and wrestling with the demons. One of the scariest things is for us to aim at the ultimate, the thing that we've been waiting, searching for, and getting there, and realizing when you come to the apex, feeling empty and void. Many of us might think, oh, well, I'd rather be there first, at least, to feel that way. When I think about this passage, the passage in the narrative continues, I think it can be very tempting for me to, and perhaps some of us, to find ourselves where Jesus is at the well and wanting to simply comfort the woman. After all, she's a lonely woman. She's ostracized. But instead of just comforting her, Jesus does what Jesus does best. He's compassionate. He starts a conversation with someone that no one else would, but he also speaks uncomfortable truth. He shows biblical love, and he cares for her in a way that has eternal consequence. Jesus tells her, go, call your husband and come here. And she responds by saying, I have no husband. And Jesus, because he knows all things, says, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
She's asked for living water, but she has to also deal with the sin in her life. It is hard to talk about sin, and the more lightly we think of sin, the less glorious the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ becomes. Salvation from her sin required her to have a right understanding of Jesus Christ as Jesus disclosed that he is the Messiah, the rescuer of people from sin. Throughout the Bible, God, when people of God are in dire situation, he would send a rescuer. We went through the book of Judges, people of Israel, did things that dishonored God, God would send these people to discipline them. And when they cried out, God sent a judge to deliver them. When people of God were enslaved in Egypt, they cried out, and what did God do? God sent a rescuer. And God called the people of God to remember and celebrate this rescue each year so that when the ultimate rescuer comes, they will be ready be ready to be rescued from sin and death. Jesus wasn't having this conversation, obviously, to humiliate her. He got rid of all the possible distractions that might make her feel small, sent his disciples away. He wouldn't have dealt with all these social barriers, breaking them, if he meant to humiliate her. But when he asks her to come and bring her husband, he's not changing the subject. In fact, he wanted to get at the heart, the nature of this living water that Jesus offered. He wanted her to first understand how she had been seeking it in her own life, mainly through men. And it clearly wasn't working. Five husbands, and now the sixth, not even married. Jesus knew all about this woman because he knew the hearts of men that she was bankrupt, but she still didn't stop trying. She kept at it. She kept going back to the water, thinking it will satisfy her, but no. Brother and sister, what cistern are you going back to? Thinking maybe the next one, the, the bigger one, the greater one will satisfy you and not leave you empty and lonely. The scene of this woman coming every day alone at 12 o'clock is a picture of her state as a person in relation to other people and with God. Jesus wanted her to see that. Throughout the Bible, the language of drinking from living water is not foreign. But then again, the Samaritans didn't really believe in other books other than the Pentateuch. But in Jeremiah chapter 2, God speaks of the foolishness of forsaking him, the fountain of living water, and taking for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can't even hold any water. How ridiculous is that? Jeremiah 17 speaks of warning those who forsake the Lord, forsaking the foundation of living water. Isaiah 12, Isaiah 55 speaks of joyfully drawing water from the springs of salvation. Everyone that thirsts, 
God says in Isaiah 55, come and drink water. And by the time we get to John 6, we see the series of I am, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. The reason that we need to come to Jesus is because we are thirsty. Do you know that? We live in northeast, closest to one of the biggest cities in this nation. And I think it's pretty easy to notice that we are thirsty. People who work in the city, there's this drive. Um, it kind of magnifies the state of our human heart. It's like, if I get this, I think I will be satisfied. But there's no end. closer the possibility that you can actually achieve that, the more we're going to convince ourselves, I just need to work a little harder. Only when we get there, it just doesn't satisfy. We're like the woman. We go filling our life jar with water that doesn't, cannot satisfy. Rejecting the promise of living water that's been given throughout this book. As many Israelites rejected the living water Experiencing barrenness instead apart from God. The people of God had the fountain of living water. Yet again again, history that we see in the Bible is tragic abandonment of that water and turning to something else, lesser things to find satisfaction. Digging little bowls, digging little wells here and there instead of drinking from God himself. The essence of sin, if you think about it, is pursuing satisfaction in something other than God. It's the beginning of idolatry because we don't trust in God to be fully sufficient. So we pursue satisfaction in something other and thus committing idolatry again and again. It's not that God is opposed to our pursuit of happiness and satisfaction. He is for that. We just need to know and remember that our greatest joy and satisfaction can only be found in Him and Him alone. We either go to something like Jacob's well and we keep going back kind of like the way we turn on our social media app to see what people might have said. And you have to keep coming back to see what they say. Or are we going to come back to Jesus, who alone can satisfy our soul? It doesn't mean trials will cease. In fact, more trials can come. Because following Jesus means picking up our cross and enduring the hardship of life as a disciple, knowing that our Lord suffered so much more. But we gain this soul fulfillment, peace, contentment as we begin to experience the fellowship of God that we are supposed to have. And closer we walk with Christ, naturally, the appeal of earthly things begin to fade away. 
yeah, we need water. Like, I need water, or else my throat will go dry. After Jesus discloses who he is, we see this amazing response of the woman. Nicodemus kind of ends the whole interaction with less and less words. Here, she speaks more and more, and she goes back home. She forgets that she came to draw water. We don't see any detail of her drawing water, but she goes back and starts spreading the good news. Not that she is now a righteous woman, because she knows she's not, but she's just excited to tell the people of the town that she has met the Messiah. She wants them to know this redeeming encounter she had. And she wanted everyone to know. The more I think about her response, the more beautiful it is. And the more I think of what proper worship is supposed to look like. This is valuable. This is worth something. And I'm going to tell people about it. We tend to think of worship as in our vernacular, worship experience, worship style. Essentially, we're so self-absorbed, it's about worshiping ourselves. But Don Carson, D.A. Carson, tells us that worship has a, is a transitive verb. We worship God. It's not about worship experience or worship style, but it's who do you worship? We all worship something. And knowing that worship is a transitive verb, the most important thing is its direct object. What do you worship? Not how, but who. I don't know if you guys know who Louis Giglio is, but he was uh, leading the passion movement for a while. I don't know if they're still around, but he speaks of worship as simply about value. I think of worship as simply about worth. It's worth-ship, right? And worship is a response to what we value most, what we think is worth the most. He says it is of it is of what highest value in my life that thing may be relationship could be a dream a position a status something you own a name a job some kind of pleasure whatever name you put on it this thing is what you have concluded in your heart is worth most to you whatever is worth most to you is what you worship. Worship is the essence declaring what we value the most. So how do we know what we worship? Well, you follow your trail. Where, where do you spend your time? Where does your affection go? Where does your daydream go? Where does your energy, how is it spent? Where's your money spent? Where's your allegiance? That path will lead you to a throne and that's what is sitting there of the highest value. That's what we worship. We might not say, I worship my stuff, I worship my job, I worship this pleasure, I worship her, I worship my body, I worship whatever you fill in the blank. But that path, that trail, whatever is sitting on that throne is what we worship because it shows us 
that that is worth the most for us. You know what's amazing in the way this passage ends? In contrast to how the Pharisees, the religious leaders, do not respond. Sure, there are superficial responses of those who've seen the miracles and heard Jesus' teaching and they believe, yet Jesus doesn't really fully trust. But the religious leaders, eh, they don't believe at all. They, they get threatened. But in contrast to all that, and you fast forward later on, by the time Jesus goes to Galilee and people of his town, they don't believe him either. Prophet is rejected by his own town, right? Jesus stays two more days. Many believe in Jesus because of what she testifies, but as Jesus stays and teaches the truth, now they begin to trust in Jesus for themselves. The gospel is to go from Jerusalem, Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, and we see this happening here. Brothers and sisters, as we reflect on this truth, let me ask you again, what are you thirsting for in your life? Sure, you might see the the superficial, the things outwardly that you're going after, but do you know what all of that is pointing you to? Like the woman, she's thirsting for relationship, but she is truly in need of God. Whether you're like Nicodemus, who seemed to have it all together, in the eyes of the people at least, but not to God's eye, or like this woman whose life seems to be falling apart and have nothing together, and everyone or Nobody is paying attention to you. The truth of the gospel is that we are in desperate need of God. We are all lost, and we need his forgiveness. He knows you, and he knows your heart. He knows me, and he knows my heart. That is both comforting and scary. And it's this Jesus, the Messiah, who calls us to come, repent, believe in him so that we may be saved. Brothers and sisters, do you know what you're thirsting for? Ask him for the living water. Only he can satisfy you. Let us pray. Lord, this I thirst and give me a drink. It's not the last time that you uttered those words. On the cross, you said, I thirst. As you quoted Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You died of thirst and everything else as you were being crucified so that we may have living water. You had the ultimate spiritual thirst so that we may have the ultimate spiritual refreshment, salvation through your life, your death, and resurrection. Have mercy on us knowing that what you offer is a gift. We can't do anything to earn it. So, Lord, move in us so that we can be humble enough to ask and receive, and in receiving, respond with faith and gratitude for your glory. Let's continue to lift up our prayers to the Lord as we humble ourselves.